So a quick summary from Nehemiah to catch up with the situation that we're in currently. Nehemiah, in the month of Kislev, heard about Jerusalem. And when he had heard what happened to Jerusalem, he wept for days. He fasted. He mourned. His heart was broken. It was shattered for his people because he was a part of them. He had decidedly in his life committed himself not to just be an individual who hears about a group of people, but that to be a part of that people. He and they were one. And so he was, he was vexed in his spirit. He was crying. He was fasting. And he came before God. And we pick up here in chapter 2, and it's the month of Nisan. The month of Nisan means it's been four months. So he started hearing about the situation. He's broken down. He's crying. He's, his heart is, is, is all over the place. It's been four months of him mourning and thinking and praying and crying and strategizing. And then he comes before the king, and the king says, What is wrong with your face? Have you ever had someone say that to you? What's wrong with your face? My mom has that saying. That's how she tells me something's wrong with me. When I come in, she says, what's wrong with your face? Fix it. Okay. That's what she, when we go to church, say happy Sabbath, and you better be happy. Okay, happy Sabbath. What's wrong with your face? Fix it. The king notices that something has vexed Nehemiah so deeply that it begins to to, to uh, overflow into his countenance. The guy that the king has never seen sad or broken or down, someone who may bring him great joy in life, in this moment now is broken. So the king says, why is your face so sad? And he replies, he, the text says that he's afraid. He's very afraid, but he replies, why would my face not be sad? Because my home is broken. King says, what can we do? They negotiate. He says, this is what I need. I need permission to go. Okay, fine. You got permission. And I need you to pay me. What? Yeah, please, pay me. Okay, fine. You get paid. I need your protection too. What? Okay, fine. You get my protection. Okay, so now I'm going to be on paid leave for months and months and months. You're going to protect me from people, and you're going to give me permission to go. Now, this is Nehemiah the slave. This is not Nehemiah uh, a major prophet or Nehemiah some royal, royal person. This is a, a, a slave person who's working in the king's courts. But because of who he was and the way he affected the world around him, the people around him couldn't but lean in to support him. That the church would live such a magnificent life so that when the world sees us, they want to lean in and help us get the kingdom work done. Amen. This is Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes. He runs into hecklers, some haters along the road. He continues forward. He immediately begins to walk and assess the situation. And then they begin to build. He calls the people together. He inspires them. He encourages them. And they begin to build. And chapter 2 ends with the haters coming back and starting to heckle again. But Nehemiah says, this is not your time. This is God's time to do a great work. There are two for me. Two pivotal takeaways 
from chapter 2. And I think that hanging on these two, the rest of the story gets built out. So we need to be able to, I think, pull in a little bit and see what these two takeaways are for us. I'll just throw this text back up for you so we can look at it. So the, so the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Oh God, bless us in the text today that we might hear your voice and come running after you. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Let all God's people say, amen. So here we are. The first thing, I'm going to work in reverse. So uh, the first point I want to make here is this, this last portion we just read. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lie waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah was put into this place in history because the people are to return from exile. So Nehemiah here becomes the advocate for his people. The church is a place of advocacy. We are a people, the church, the body, we are a people who are called into advocacy towards shalom, shalom, shalom. This idea not just of a faint, a weak peace, a, a peace that kind of placates the problems underneath between people and between groups. This idea of shalom is much larger. It means goodness and peace for all groups, all parties, between them and God. Shalom is, a, is an idea of what fruition uh, uh, can come from when justice is exercised. We are that people. We are the people of advocacy towards a community of tov, of goodness, of compassion, of rightness. If it's one thing that church should just be amazing at, it's not preaching or praise. It should be compassion. This is what the church is to do. We are the advocates for compassion and rightness. This is what we see Jesus doing as he moves across, as he, as he heals a leper, as he spends time with adulterous women who he protects from the predators around her. As he touches the life of a Syrophoenician woman's daughter. This is who we see in Jesus. When he allows children come to him. When in their cultural context, children were not allowed to be with Jesus. And then Jesus, in the book of Matthew, as he meets with his boys on Galilee, he gives them this great commission. He says, all power and authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. Go make more advocates of shalom, of tov, of compassion, of goodness, of justice. We want to be a church that is full of God advocates. Turn to the person that you say, be an advocate. Be an advocate. We cannot be effective advocates without listening hearing and or losing our comfort and ease in our personal life over the discomfort of others. And this is what happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah lost his comfort for four months 
So much so that the king reads it on his countenance. Have you and I sat in the uncomfortable pain of others? Have we learned to listen to the groanings of the world around us who needs a church that is more compassionate and more loving than ever? Have we been courageous enough to tune in to the, the pains of people groups who are silently being passed by normative mainstream Christianity and culture in general? We must advocate and exercise our advocacy muscles. We must train our empathy. We must practice hearing with our spiritual hearts. Story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, well-known theologian in the 20th century. He's written great things on ethics, discipleship, community, just phenomenal work. He's also known for being a martyr who died in, uh, in camp during the Nazi, World War II, uh, Third Reich War. And people know him very well, not just because he's a fantastic and phenomenal theologian, but because of his practical life givings that he would give up his own life to try to stop this Nazi machine of hate and anger. But the interesting thing about his life is some people may know, some people may not. I, I, I learned this as I was reading, is that uh, the, the way he was able to reflect on his situation at home was by him traveling away. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 to a very elite family, wealthy, well-to-do, strong family. To the father's surprise, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer decided that he would become a theologian at 14. He finished his dissertation in 1927, and he decided to take a break and travel the world. So as he begins to travel the world, he is a theologian. He's, he has his studies. He's very clear about God and the universe, and he was able to speak beautifully about these things. But then he came back and he decided he would go to school again. And so he finds himself back in the classroom. And uh, he finds himself in the classroom found in New York City at the Union Theological Seminary. This is where Bonhoeffer's life changes. God is no longer just uh, the God that we speak of or write of or sing of. But God becomes something different, something more, something more groundbreaking, something from underneath, something that is rooted in people. When he gets there, Bonhoeffer is not by any means impressed by American theology. He's robust, he's thoughtful, he's systematic, he has it all down. So America has nothing really to offer him. It's kind of thin slate for, Hoffer, for Bonhoeffer. Um, but the thing that really transformed him was a friendship he created with a gentleman named Franklin Fisher. Here in this picture, Franklin Fisher is in the second row, third from the right. Bonhoeffer is in the third row, far right. Franklin Fisher introduces Bonhoeffer to African-American culture. They begin to spend time in Harlem. I, I, I don't know if anybody knows this, but, but Bonhoeffer was going out in Harlem and hanging and chilling and, 
and he started going to a, an African-American church. He crosses color lines, which is huge for the 1930s, and then he crosses over church color lines, and that's huge. Crossing over church color lines today is kind of weird for us. Right? Like, we, we love each other. Like, hey, you know, but, but, you know, you go to a church and their culture is not your culture. It's awkward. Let's be honest. Somebody say amen. Right? You might go to their church and, and, and you're like, oh, snap. They're, stand up. Oh, sit down. Oh, stand, stand up. Sit down. What are we doing? I don't know. Church has been nine hours. I know. They just started. What? Right? It's awkward for us now. Think about 1930s. Think about the color lines. Think about the racial injustice that is happening. Bonhoeffer is being pulled into this with, by his friend Fisher, and they begin to go down to Harlem, and Bonhoeffer is beginning to recognize the injustices that are happening among African Americans. And he has a difficult time being able to process being a Christian who says we love God and love people, and then, and then the, the injustices and discriminations against the African American community that he sees before his very eyes. So he internalizes this. And this transformed this elitist theologian, German theologian, to someone who begins to look at the world from the under, up. No longer is God just the out and down, but now God is speaking through the rooted people who are broken, who are oppressed, who are held down. And so Bonhoeffer gets a new perspective on life. So what happens? Bonhoeffer goes back. He goes back to Germany, and now he begins to be able to dissect and discern. He sees the Jews, and he sees the Nazis, and he sees how the Third Reich is doing the same thing. And in his mind, he has begun to shift because his spiritual heart has heard the pains of the African-American community. And so he begins to see that same reflection here. Him and Karl Barth and a few others began what they would call the Confessing Church, a church that stood up against the state church in Germany who would not go along with the Third Reich. They spoke against it, all because Bonhoeffer had an experience where his heart was opened to Fisher to hear from the bottom up. He then becomes an advocate for the Jews in Germany. What an amazing story a fusion theology that moves you from one place of the world to the other, and now you've got a heart that is wide awake and wide open to the brokenness of the world. It got so bad, the, the confessing church started talking, and, and they started getting shut down and getting persecuted. So Bonhoeffer leaves back to America for about a year. He's like, okay, it's getting hot in here, so I'm going to move back to America. So he goes back to America only for a year, and then he decides he cannot stay in America um, in the comfort of that place, in the safety of this place, if he wants to advocate for his people at home. And so he writes this. I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after World War, the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people. And we know that that led Bonhoeffer eventually to be executed just weeks before the war was over. This happens because he got new lenses. 
He realized that his Christianity, the one that he had gotten a dissertation before earlier in life, wasn't just about uh, dogma and semantics and language. It was about understanding the heart of Jesus who always advocates for people, who always advocates for shalom and goodness, the outcasts. Hence why the Pharisees say things like, uh, look at him, he eats with sinners and, somebody knows this verse, he eats with sinners and tax collectors, right? Jesus advocates. We are to advocate. We are a church that advocates for goodness in the world. So, part two of this is the following. Back to our verse. And we're going to just pick up on this, the first portion of that. So the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Very much afraid. If you've ever been afraid in your life, can I hear an amen? Amen. amen. The problem I have with fear and worry is that in, in our Christian context, in our communal context, we often make fear a, a litmus test for someone with low faith. Right? When we say, oh, you're, you're worried? You're, you're, you're afraid? You just have to what? Pray more. That's what we tell people when they're worried and they're, and they're afraid of things. Oh, you know what? It's because you don't have enough faith. Yeah, you, you know, you've, you've given the speech or you've heard the speech, right? You just, you know, you know you've got to trust Jesus more. That's the problem with you. If you did, you wouldn't have any fears or worries anymore. But let's be honest. None of us has ever gone through life fearless completely. Why? Well, because fear is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It's a God mechanism in us that helps us recognize when, when a situation uh, or an event needs us to take a little bit of caution, to ease more innovation, to be steadfast, to be thorough. This is what the fear mechanism does in us. It's important for us to fear things. If we didn't fear things, things would, would just go out of haywire for all of us. Could you imagine if you were never fearful of things that your children did? I'm always scared of things my children do. Always. If the, the time I'm most scared is when, when things are quiet in the house. When things are quiet, you know something's going down. They're building a bomb in there. I know it. I know it. This is just the way it is, right? If we didn't have to, could you imagine living a life without some kind of mechanism that, that helps us shift into more caution, helps us shift into more creativity, helps us shift into, into more steadfastness and, and more intentionality? We would just wreck our lives. Fear is not a bad thing. Fear is only bad when it becomes larger than God. When it paralyzes us from moving into the spaces that God calls us into. Fear itself is not a bad thing. So if you're a Christian here today, maybe you've heard it, maybe you're tired of hearing that you need more faith, I just want to tell you, you don't need more faith. You don't, you don't need to do more prayers, or you don't need to do more things to trick God into doing what you need to do. We don't need to trick God. God wants to be on our team, amen? He is for us. The word says, if he is for us, who can be 
against this. Oh, church, you're talking to me today. Praise the Lord. That's it. Nehemiah is very afraid. As well he should be. Anytime we advocate for compassion and goodness, anytime we advocate for kingdom living, anytime we advocate from the bottom up, what happens is, 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 is the fear of being persecuted, is the fear of someone calling us up, is the fear of, of messing up. It, there's a ton of fears that can happen to us. And so it's a nerve-wracking kind of thing. Nehemiah is in this place. But may I just say, faith in God does not mitigate fear. It maximizes courage. That's what faith in God does. You can be fully faithful and trusting in God and still be scared. But that fear will not stop you from moving forward into the place God wants you to be. This is the kind of thing that Moses had to deal with. Could you imagine Moses on the front lines and God says, Moses, I want you to strike your staff against the water and it will part the waters. I just don't, I, you know, <laughs> at that point, if I were Moses, I'd be like, God, you're a horrible God. And I would throw my stick down, I would turn around, I'd go back to Egypt. But Moses had enough experiences with God where God would do miraculous things that all Moses could do was not allow his fear to turn him around, but allow his faith to maximize his courage. And he steps in the waters part and Israel moves through. Faith, it doesn't mitigate our fear. Because we're believers doesn't all of a sudden mean we're gonna stop being afraid of things doesn't mean you're not going to be scared of something. It just means you're going to have this fresh sense of courage that even though you don't know what's going to happen in the next moment, you trust that God is in that moment awaiting you. Nehemiah was afraid because of the risks to his preservation. What if the king wasn't happy with his response? But he heard the brokenness of the people, so he can't stop the thinking about it. He's already connected in his spiritual heart the need for advocating for them. He believed that God called him to this place. He heard it in his spirit. And the faith that granted him the courage will surpass the fear he has. And so he speaks forward into the situation and things change. I want to ask you all. Where has God been calling you lately? that your fear has stopped you from going? Where has God been pulling your heart that you, you, you're just, you're fighting the, the whole issue of, I want to God, but what if? What, how many of us are living with the what ifs? It's time to release the what ifs and lean into the calling of Jesus. No more what ifs. I, uh, I was 39, which was just like 30 minutes ago, to be honest, because I'm 29 now, so, you know. I was 39. I had gotten the opportunity to start my doctorate program. I was invited to come, share on the campus, and be part of it, and I didn't go. And when one of my members heard about this, on Sabbath, she called me up. She said, Pastor, come here. I need to talk to you. This is the respect I get from people. Pastor, come here, come here, I need to talk to you. 
I said, hey, I'm going to come over here and talk to you. Hey, hey, what's going on? She says, hey, I heard, hey, praise God, I heard about how, you know, you, you were able to get into this program. And yeah, so what are you doing next? I said, oh, I'm not going to do anything. She said, what do you mean you're not going to do anything? I said, well, you know, uh, you know, it's just not the right time. She said, well, well, when is the right time? Is it tomorrow? Is it yesterday? Is it in 10 years? I said, well, you know, I mean, well, what if I get in and I don't have the money? She says, you'll never have the money. You're a pastor. <laughs> Solid burn. I said, well, yeah, but what if I get in and, 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 and you know, it's, it's hard. She says, everything's hard. Well, what if I get in and I don't like the program? Yeah, uh, that's part of life. I said, there's so many things that I'm unsure about. She says, listen, here's the thing. You can start the program and be unsure of it as you go along, or you can look back in five years and be still unsure with no degree. If God has called you into that space, are you going to step up? And I was like, you're so right. And I didn't do it. I started my program at 45. And I looked back and I said, man, I could have been done already. I texted her. I said, you're right. Some years have passed. I've gotten it. And she said, don't worry. Better late than never. You're an old man now, but it's okay. Praise the Lord. <laughs> What's holding you back from stepping forward into a space that God has in store for you? What's holding you back from, from being the, the, the compassionate kingdom advocate that God has in store for you and I? God has called us to this space. And he wants us to move forward. And we cannot allow our fear to paralyze us. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough money. What, what do people think? You know, I just wasn't made that way. Uh, you know, what if everything falls apart? We tried this before and failed. We, you know, all the things that we could think of to put in layers, none of those things are real. They're just excuses so that we don't have to move forward into the calling God has for us. It's time for us to do that, friends. A couple weeks ago, about three, four weeks ago, I went out to eat with, because I like to eat, amen. Praise the Lord for good food. I went out to eat with uh, the School of Business chairperson, the director, Johnny Thomas Miss uh, and he took me out. He's been dying to take me out. So ever since, you know, there, you know, he texted me and said, hey, brother, we want to take you out. We want to talk to you. We, we support you. We, we want to be part. I said, okay, great. So we made a date about three weeks ago to go eat. And he says, don't worry about the place. I've already picked a place for us. And I, I was thinking in my spirit, oh, snap. Should I be worried or should I not? I'm not a picky eater because food is good. But I don't have like a powerful palate. Right? Some of you can, can put like spice on food. Some of you will slam a bunch of chili and a hot spicy stuff and you eat it and no one's sweating anywhere. I, I will sweat if I'm using ketchup. I just can't. I'm weak sauce. And I was like, he's probably going to take us to Indian food and I love Indian food, but it's got to be mild and I hope this place is okay. And he says, don't worry about it. Let's go, let's go. So I go, Pastor Ben, Pastor Steve, Pastor Pono, Pastor Jason, uh, Loveland is there. And, and him, and I think it was a couple other people, and we get into this restaurant. It's called Dosalicious. Anyone been to Dosalicious before? Hey, that's my peoples. It is a good place. But that's not what I knew at that moment. 
So we came into this place, and they've got uh, workings of the, of the area, and Johnny's talk, telling me about it. He's like, that's my home country, you know, this is my people's, and the Indian food here is different from other places because we're, we're a different, a special kind of group of people. And all I could think in my mind was, man, please, 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 I'm a vegetarian, one, please, and two, please, nothing spicy, nothing spicy. We sit down at the table, and they push out all these menus, and all of us, most of us around that table had never been there. So we're like, I'm looking at this thing, and I don't recognize a thing on the menu. I don't recognize. I'm like, I don't even know how to pronounce that. Laksa, nope, nope, don't do it. I looked over my menu to other people, and those who, for the first timers, were doing the same thing. They were looking at it, and I saw the fear in their face. And I was looking at them, I was looking at them, I was looking at them. I look at Johnny. Johnny says, you're having a problem? Let me help you. We're going to order this, and, and we'll get some of that. Hey, that's a good one there. This is a good one. And I, and I was like, this is the first time I've eaten with a man. Can I trust him? Can I trust him to be honest and truthful? Or is this some horrible joke from the school of business where they want to teach humility to the senior pastor at Los Angeles University Church? I said, are you sure? He says, no problem. He says, but you've got to be brave. I want you to try something. Don't just get the thing that normal people, I want you to go exotic. Go exotic. Brother, being here is exotic. How much more exotic do you want me to get right now? Just go, go for it. Go for it. And we're having a choke time. And this is what Johnny says. He says, hey, I am paying for lunch. Praise the Lord. For that, that was gospel news to me. I am paying for lunch. And then he says, all you have to do is be brave. I look at a menu that is foreign to me, that is overwhelming with information, that I'm unfamiliar with. The voice of reason comes and says, I have paid for it. You just got to be brave to try. So I sat there and I said, be brave, Vicky. Be brave. Anything with an animal name, don't pick that. We get our plates and we're sitting there and, and, and he has this one dish and we all get, he got one for each of us. And I was like, this is, we're all going to die. This is why he did this. And we all get, and he says, at the same time, let's eat. And I said, this sounds very cult-like, but okay. So one, two, three. The most wonderful thing I've had since I've been to Riverside. Refreshing. Full of flavor. Full of life. I couldn't believe my taste buds. And it was vegetarian. I opened my eyes in great delight and I look across and everyone just, whoa, mind blown. This is amazing. I couldn't help but think of all the spiritual implications in that moment. The fear that struck my heart about a new place, the fear of being overwhelmed by all the options, the fear of not knowing what it will be like. Being new to this, what if I don't like it? What if it somehow uh, uh, burns me inside and I'm, I'm in pain? What if, am I going to uh, harm anyone's feelings if I don't like the food? What, what if, what if, what if, what if? And then the voice of reason comes booming in. Hey, I've paid for it all. All you have to do is be brave enough to try. As if God spoke into my spirit at that moment and said, hey, this journey you're on, the spiritual life, I've paid for it all. All of it's paid. 
are free, free indeed. And now I push it to you, my child. All you have to do is be brave and try. Today, leave this place full of the Spirit of God who calls us to advocate for shalom and goodness, joy and peace, love. And when you are afraid, whether or not you can do this, remember, our faith will not mitigate the fear. It will maximize our courage. So go ahead. Give it a try.